It's Father's Day, and today, as uh, Ray said, it's a day which Dad gets the day off. Although he said he didn't have to wash dishes, and I was thinking to myself, well, that's, that's kind of funny, because uh, in, in my family, I didn't know that I was supposed to wash dishes, so now i got to go back and uh, pay, pay reparations to my wife. We've kind of delegated it out a little bit more, but... Uh... Anyhow, on Father's Day, you know, this is a day to honor Dad. It's a day to thank Dad for what he's done for us and to give him a special day of recognition. But as, uh, as, as is often the case, when we were little kids, and perhaps even uh, as we grew into our teenage years, there was one thing that undoubtedly all of us did to Dad. We bothered him. Sure, one day you heard it for the first time. You were perhaps messing around in dad's room or playing the music too loud or fighting with the sister. And mom came into the room and said, kids, don't bother your father. And we thought, okay, you're right, mom. I don't want to bug dad. We sure don't want to annoy Dad because we know that when Dad gets bugged, we get the whipping. And it's known throughout all cultures that when you bother Dad, it's a bad thing. Bad news comes when you bother Dad. You know, in my family, uh, when I think of bothering my father, one thing comes to mind. And it is on, on road trips. Okay, we'll be driving down the road, and I was about, well, anywhere from four all the way up to about 15. We'd be driving down the road, and I would always have the back right seat in the car. My sister would always have the back left seat, so she was right behind Dad, which was convenient because he couldn't see what she was doing as well. But in our family on vacations, one of the things that I would do is just incessantly harass my sister. While we were on the road... I would pinch her and poke her and make fun of her and laugh at her until she was just in tears. I was an awful, awful brother, I'll admit it. And my mother repeatedly would have to turn around and say, Kids, don't bother your father. So we'd stop for a little bit. A few minutes later, Kids, don't bother your father. Now, Second time, it was getting a little heavy. Well, the third time, Mom didn't turn around. Who turned around? Dad turned around. And when Dad turns around, you know it's bad news. And so when Dad would turn around and say, Kids, you're bugging me, that was the moment in time in which the pestering in the car would absolutely stop. There would be no more annoying my sister when Dad turned around because Dad meant business. And in all of our families, we know that when dad is annoyed or dad is bothered, that is bad news for us kids. Well, we're going to look at a Bible passage today that has to do with bothering, that has to do with a little bit of annoyance, a little bit of pestering. And it's not so much the bothering of a father, it's the bothering of a sleeping friend. We're going to look today at an individual who bothers his friend at midnight for three loaves of bread because he needs to feed an, a guest who's arrived at his home. And we're going to find out what it is 
in this pestering and this bothering that Jesus is trying to tell you and me with respect to our own lives and what it also says about the character and person of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 5, go through about verse 10. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 10. This, is, this text that we're reading here today is coming directly after the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11. Or we might call it the Disciples' Prayer. Let's take a look. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 5. And he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, Which of you, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now, Lord, that you would attune our hearts to your word, that you would remove any distractions. Undoubtedly, we've come off a a work week and perhaps chores around the house the other day, and there's many things that could pull our minds away from your word, Lord. But today, in this very hour, is the time in which we desire to study it and to grow thereby from it. Help us to understand this story, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, has told. And help us to see how valuable it is in our own development in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said, this story in Luke 11 starting verse 5, the story of the man coming to his, the friend who comes to his, the sleeping house at midnight is directly after the Lord's Prayer. Or as our Pastor Arch used to say, the Disciples' Prayer, because the Lord's Prayer is actually a prayer that we are supposed to model. Directly after the Lord's Prayer. Therefore, it seems reasonable, I would think, and I think we would all agree, that directly following the Lord's Prayer, we might find an illustration of how the Lord's Prayer might be used or of how praying to the Lord might be used in our own day-to-day lives. And sure enough, Jesus here with the disciples pulls them aside and explains a little bit further of what it means to pray. But he does it in story form to help you and I understand a little more clearly. So let's dig in. We're going to look at this. We're going to interpret this for a while. For the next about 20 minutes or so, we're going to interpret it because we really got to understand what's going on here. And then the last portion of the message, we're really going to sit down and say, okay, what does this mean? How do we use this today? What can Coast pull out of this story? So let's take a look. Starting in verse 5, let's interpret the story and get to know what's going on. Verse 5, And he, Jesus, said to them, Which of you 
shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. If you look up on the screen in yellow, you see which of you, which of you. Jesus is asking the disciples to consider a story. But more than that, Jesus is asking the disciples to listen to this story and to answer a question. To listen to the story and to answer a question. And at the end of the story, we're going to see in verse 7 that Jesus is going to introduce this question. But for now, it's just important for us to realize that Jesus is attempting to spark the minds of the disciples. He's attempting to get their brains working a little bit with the story. And we're going to see that this story is quite out of the ordinary. Something that they weren't so accustomed with. How does this spark their interest? How does such a story as we see up in verses 5 and 6 spark their interest? Well, it's important to understand this. In the ancient Near East, in the, in the period of time that we are looking at in Israel and the Middle East, and even carried over until the 21st century. Hospitality is a major facet of their culture. Hospitality is a major personal virtue of Middle Easterners. What we have here is a story about a a man who Jesus tells the disciples, imagine you're this man. And he doesn't have enough bread to feed his wearied friend. Who's, on, who's arrived at his home. He doesn't have enough bread. He doesn't have enough food to give him. The man has journeyed from a far distance, has come to his home perhaps a little early. I don't know. We can speculate. Maybe he showed up a few hours early. And all of a sudden, the man realizes, you know what? I don't have enough food. I can't feed this man. What am I going to do? In their culture, to not be hospitable, to not adequately care and attend to the needs of a weary traveler friend would be unthinkable, would be unheard of. It would just not be done. You must find a way to attend to the needs of this person who has come to your door at midnight. And so what does he do? He goes to his neighbor. He goes down the street, knocks on the door of his neighbor's house, his friend, And says, I'm in trouble. I need some food. Could you lend me three loaves so that I can adequately be hospitable to the friend who's come to me tonight? Hospitality. Such a critical element of this story. He wants to properly greet his guests. And so he does whatever it takes Even walking to a home at midnight. Think about that in our culture. Walking to our neighbor's house at midnight, knocking on the door and saying, yeah, I need some eggs. Yeah, we're just, we're cooking some pancakes and uh, we have some guests over and we just thought we'd have a midnight snack and do you have any eggs? At midnight. Imagine how drastic of a measure that would be in our culture. Well, equally so, that's a drastic measure in their culture. But not as drastic because they know how important hospitality is. They know how important hospitality is. So the disciples are 
very much engaged from the onset of the story about what is happening. They're thinking to themselves, wow, this guy's in trouble. He needs to get some bread or else he's going to embarrass himself and his family. Okay, back to the text. So now we're knocking on the door of the house, hoping to get some bread. And Jesus brings in a little bit of a twist. He says, let's go back to verse 5. We'll read through verse 7. Which of you, having a friend and going to him at midnight, and you would say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, within the home, and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are in bed and I cannot rise and give to you. There is nothing, nothing in the sleeper's present condition that is motivating, him, that is motivating enough for him to get up, to get out of bed. The man sleeping happily relies on a variety of factors which will comfort him in his decision to remain in bed. There's a variety of factors here. Let's go through them. He says, no, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. Why? Uh, the door is shut. The door is shut. What does that mean? Is the door shut. Okay, go open the door. Well, no. In the ancient Near East, again, here we have an interesting cultural element. When the door is shut, and by the way, it's, it's, it's used in the perfect tense in Greek, which means that it's shut and it's going to stay shut. Okay, It's shut and it's going to stay shut. But in that culture, when the door was shut, there was, there, was, there was a heavy door, most likely, as scholars go back and try to reconstruct what first century Galilee and Palestine might have been like. There would be a heavy door to the one-room home or apartment. A very heavy door. Secondly, that door would have a very heavy lock on it. So, so as to keep away anyone uh, attempting to rob them or to steal from them. And with a heavy door and a heavy lock and the darkness of night, when it's midnight, you don't have the lights on. The candles are out. It's midnight. The heavy door, the door is shut, the door is locked. He says, look, this is a, this is a good factor. This is a good excuse. The door is shut. I don't want to get up. Okay, fair enough. What does he say next? He says, the family's in bed. We presume here that they would probably be sleeping. Uh, and again, in this culture, the family, usually being in only a one-room little home or little apartment, would all be huddled together near the furnace, sleeping together, to try, trying to stay warm. Because in that part of the world, boy, the, the nights are cold. They really are. Even in the summertime, Israel can be very cold at night. And so the, the, the whole entire family would huddle around the furnace and would try to stay warm and they were sleeping at midnight and he just doesn't want to get up because he's going to have to step over his kids. He's going to have to step on them because he can't see. The door shut. The family's in bed and so he says, don't trouble me. Literally, do not afford me trouble. Don't bother me. Go away. I'm tired. Don't bring chaos to my highly substantiated and logical desire to stay in bed. Though you are my friend, and that is good reason to help you, there are greater reasons not to help you. And then look what he says. I cannot rise. Look at this. I cannot rise 
Next slide. There we go. There we go. I cannot rise. Now, this is an interesting construction here. He is using, uh, he's, he's using a word here, anastas, which we're going to see later. So I want you to pay attention to it. But this verb literally means that, that uh, he in, is in the active voice, meaning he is not able to rise himself up. He, he just he doesn't want to do it. I cannot rise. It doesn't mean he can't do it. It means he doesn't want to do it. I am unable to. I am not powerful enough to rise up right now. He's saying, I just, you know what, I don't want to do it. I can't rise. Take note of that. We're going to come back to that word in just a little bit here. He cannot rise. He's unable to rise. Not that he's handicapped, but for all intent and purposes, he considers the locked door and the warm bed a handicap in its own right. And I say to this, wouldn't you put yourself back in that situation or put yourself in the situation today? You're warm in bed, the door's locked, the lights are out, and you get a knock at the door and a call from the window that says, I need some eggs! You know, my wife, uh, she, she could especially identify here because Casey, if there's one thing that my wife likes, it is sleep, okay? It is sleep. Casey, every night, actually, when we, when we got married, she would do something every night, and I would sit there and kind of watch her, and I'm like, what are you doing? She would sit up in bed before we went to sleep, and she'd go like this. And then she'd hit the pillow. I'm like, what are you doing? Next night, you know. We're on our honeymoon and she's doing this. And I'm like, what is she doing? <laughs> We're sitting in bed, about to turn off the lights. She, she kind of sits up. And then it hits the sack again. By the third night, I'm like, honey. Or no, no, she, I'm sitting there and she gets in one, two, three. Honey, what are you doing? Well, I'm just counting how many hours I get to sleep tonight. <laughs> Go figure, you know. I mean, who does that? I don't know. My wife does. She does it every night. She still does it. It's the funniest thing. But she knows, just like all of us know, that sleep is so important. And when you're under those warm covers, man, it feels good. I don't want to get up. I want to count how many hours I'm getting tonight. Now I've got to deduct one because there's somebody outside my door. So now you're all, you're all going to count tonight. I know that. Notice the question mark at the end of verse 7. Look at the question mark. Here we have our question. It's complete. The question is, which of you, going to this friend, needing food, needing to be hospitable, and going up and knocking on the door and saying, please lend me the loaves, which of you would have a friend who would say, uh-uh? No way. Door shut. Family's in bed. No way. I'm not getting up. Which of you would have such a friend that would say this? It's at this point that, the, that Jesus is expecting a certain kind of reaction from the disciples. He obviously expects them to react in some way, shape, or form, or he wouldn't have asked a question. Unfortunately, our Bible commentators uh, are at odds over what the reaction is. Some of them say that the response to this uh, would be that the disciples would expect this kind of response. Some scholars uh, speculate that since the, day, the time of day is midnight, and uh, excuse me, and they themselves know what it's like to have the door locked and put everyone to bed, that identifying with a sleeping man is a lot more likely than identifying with a person knocking. 
So that the disciples, therefore, are showing sympathy with the sleeping man. They're saying, yeah, I understand that. I probably wouldn't get up either. On the other hand, there are other scholars, again, this is really split down the middle, it's kind of funny, who speculate that the disciples at this point would have gone, oh, what a terrible friend. I find that totally incredible, totally unbelievable. In my culture, I know that it's so important to be hospitable, and that man knows that too. He should have gotten up. I can't believe such a friend would do such a thing. And besides, it's common knowledge in all of Judaism that friends and neighbors help each other in need. In fact, it's written in the Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 3.28 up above. Solomon, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. So here we have some common logic, common knowledge of, of the Jewish tradition. I lean toward this side of the fence. I think that the disciples would have been shocked, would have said, oh, what a terrible friend. What an awful friend. How could he not get up? How could he not understand how important it is to be hospitable, to help a friend in need, to carry out the full extent of the law? It seems to be much more likely. It seems to be a much plainer reading of the text that the interpretation would be such. And there's also good reason for this because of what we see later. We're not going to look at this portion today. I thought about it, but I changed my mind. But if you look at verse 11 and 12, we see a similar kind of thing in which Jesus speaks of who would give a son a stone instead of a piece of bread? Or who would give his son a scorpion instead of an egg? What's their response? No one. No one would do that. That's in verse 11 and 12. So what would be the response here that we see in verse 7? No, no one would do such a thing. What a terrible, terrible friend. Jesus anticipates this response, but he adds a twist. And you gotta, you gotta sit back and just marvel at Jesus' storytelling abilities right here. He adds another twist to the story. Take a look at verse 8. He says this. But I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. What's going on here? I've highlighted the word though, and that might be kind of odd. You're thinking, wow, that's, that's really significant, the though. Actually, it is. What we see here with that word is, and again, let me get technical just for a second, just to help us understand and to help us fully comprehend what Jesus is doing with this word. The word though there is a-chi in Greek. It's a construction that what we would call in your outlines, you can write down a concessive clause. A concessive clause. Take a look here. A concessive clause is this. It concedes or assumes the truthfulness or likeliness of something for the sake of argument. It concedes or assumes the truthfulness or the likeliness of something happening for the sake of an argument. So Jesus says, you know what, disciples, you're right. No friend would do this. 
your reaction is justified. In our culture, surely the man would have gotten up, wouldn't he? But, but, here's the twist. I want you to pretend like he didn't get up because of that. I want you to pretend that he did not rise out of bed because of you being a friend. I want you to speculate for the sake of argument, for the sake of this story, let's pretend, let's imagine that there was something else that needed to occur for this man to rise up. And we see this concessive clause coming in later. I want to give you just a few more examples just to make it perfectly clear. In Mark 14:29, Peter says, "Even if, which is the same word as though, a kai, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be." Speaking to Jesus here, he's saying, "Even if I concede that everybody leaves you, I will remain faithful." For the sake of argument, let's say everybody left you, Jesus, I will remain faithful to you. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Let's concede the fact that we're by nature dying, that our fleshly bodies will one day hit the dirt. Let's concede that, Paul says, but, oh yes, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Finally, 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, Let's concede that, Peter says. Let's concede that you're going to suffer for the Lord and for righteousness' sake. But you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. So again, a concessive clause, really important here. Jesus is saying, let's pretend. Let's consider. Let's concede this fact. For the sake of the argument, for the sake of the story, let's assume he stays in bed for the moment. What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? What's going to occur? What measures are you going to take to get what you need? The disciples have already heard this story and they're thinking, I don't, I don't believe it. I don't believe any of my friends would act this way. But now Jesus says, imagine he did act that way. What are you going to do? I want to sit back again real quick, just as an aside. I want teachers, you who are teachers in this room, look at how marvelous Jesus' teaching is here. Look at how creative it is. He's telling a story that gets a reaction and then he puts in a plot twist and they get even, they get even more engrossed in the story. Now they're eating out of his hands. They're waiting for him to say, well, what's going to occur next? Teachers, when you teach, be it in a classroom or you're teaching the Bible, this is a style that is so helpful. This is how Jesus teaches again and again and again. You know, I, we can get up here and pound doctrine and, and, and pound just, you know, this is what it says and that's it and go home, hey, we're happy. But if we don't tell stories and we don't illustrate and we don't get creative in communicating God's truth, we're going to lose our hearers. Jesus knew that. He had 12 men that, boy, he had to go to great lengths to get their attention, didn't he? And those who are students, I, I encourage you, those who are in classroom settings or you're in Sunday school or you're in the pews today, I just encourage you, ask questions, clarify, understand the story, get engrossed in the story. Right now, as you're hearing the Word of God, we should all be looking at the story and identifying with these reactions and, and being able to, to have them resonate with our hearts. That is what Jesus wants us to do. 
Don't just store knowledge in our heads, but let them sink into our hearts so that you and I can be better people, that we can be transformed by the Spirit of God within us. The learning environment for Jesus was one of the most exciting parts of a person's day. Okay, off my aside. Back to the text. Back to the question. For the sake of argument, let's assume he stays in bed. What are you going to do now? What will happen next? And now we come to the word persistence. Verse 8. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Tough word here, persistence. Very tough word. In fact, it's the only time it's used in all the New Testament. Only time. So you can guess, based on that alone, that it's hard to translate this word because it's the only occurrence in the New Testament. So what do Bible scholars do? They go back. And they look at other Greek texts. They look at history books. They look at the philosophers of ancient Greek and they see how they use the word. And then they go after that and they go to the early church fathers and they try to figure out what did, how did they interpret this word. And that's how you and I get the word persistence today. But it's a process. And it's, an, it's somewhat of an imperfect science, as a matter of fact. But I think we got a good word here. I think persistence is correct. I, I labored with this for who knows how long. It was... Racking my brain, John and Ray, John Varela and Ray Lupinay were, were looking it over with me too the other day, and, and it's a tough word. But for the sake of time, I want to address some of the critical elements of this word. Earlier Greek, I want to say this, there's a range of meaning. Uh, the next slide, if you would. The range of meaning here is in earlier Greek, in classical Greek, the word meant shamelessness. meant to have no sense of shame. It was a negative quality. Not that they were shameless being without shame, but rather that they were filled with shame and they didn't really know it. Okay, They were a person who was shameless, like a shameless liar. But as the word progressed throughout history, in Jesus' time and following, the word took on a more positive quality and meant persistence or boldness. Earlier Greek, as I said, used this noun with a strong negative tone. The ancient... Greek meaning of the word is shamelessness, seen as a thoroughly negative quality. But approaching the time of Jesus, the word's meaning was beginning to evolve and expand to incorporate more positive connotations. And by the third century, it was almost exclusively positive. In fact, two church fathers, Origen and Tertullian, uh, two men of the third century, translated this word as perseverance or persistence, a kind of incessant boldness, something good. In the context of this story, in my opinion, it takes a great deal of maneuvering to try and fit shamelessness into the text. I think that's the incorrect meaning here. Uh, I, I don't think it flows with the story. I don't think you can demonstrate the shamelessness of the sleeper or the shamelessness of the man outside based on the culture. Based on the context and based on the culture, I think it's much more reasonable for us to look at persistence as a good translation here. Presumably, the persistent knocking and calling out of the man outside. Thus, eventually, the sleeper arose and addressed his needs. But there's two other elements of this verse that help us to see why it is persistence. And I want to show this to you. Take a look at the next slide. In the next verse, or excuse me, in in verses 7 and 8, we see uh, some interesting things here in yellow. Remember, I cannot rise. We looked at that earlier. In verse 8, 
we see he will not rise. Same Greek word. Next slide, if you would. Right here, we see in these two verses, the same Greek word is being used. The man says, I cannot rise. In other words, I, in the active voice, I will not get up. I'm not going to do it. Jesus, in verse 8, says, let's assume for sake of argument, he doesn't. He uses the same word. Same word. He says, let's assume he doesn't get up. Let's assume he doesn't get up. Now look at the next point. He says, but, Jesus says, he will rise. And this is a different word. Erethase in Greek. This is a verb that is in the passive voice. And any of you know the English grammar a little bit, you know that the passive voice means what? means that the action is being done upon the person. It means there's something outside occurring that compels the person to do what they're about to do. What's my point? The man would not rise because of his friend. The, the man would sleep in bed and happily stay in bed because of all the factors surrounding the situation. He says, look, you're a good friend, but hey, i got so many other reasons. I cannot rise. Verse 8, Jesus says in the passive, and he changes the word for emphasis, but he will literally be caused to rise. Something external will cause this man to get up and to rise up and to meet the needs of his friend outside. Why is this significant? What else would cause someone to get up out of bed other than... Imagine, I need three loaves. No, I'm gone sleeping. Kids are in bed. I need three loaves. No, I'm in bed. Yes, you're a friend, but I'm tired. The kids are asleep. The door's locked. Okay. That's what's happening. That's exactly what's happening here. And Jesus is making the point so clear for us that persistence becomes the obvious meaning of the word. Something external causes the man to get up. Jesus changes the word and he changes the voice of the verb. And that, my friends, is the beauty of what Jesus is doing here. He's helping you and I to see very vividly that something else makes this man get up. And it is persistence. Did everybody catch that? Did I explain that adequately? Okay. If not, you can ask me questions afterwards. CJ the other day said she wanted to ask a question last week. And I said, hey, go ahead, raise your hand. I'll, I'll answer it. <laughs> okay. So, we see that something external causes the man to raise up. Thus, the passive voice. Thus, we can assume that it was the persistence of the man outside doing that. One more thing. One more technical thing, and then we're going to get to application. Last technical item of this verse. Look at yet because. Next slide. Yet because. Okay. Why is that significant? Okay, here we have the only instance of yet because in all the New Testament. Dia gay is the, is the construction here. Dia gay is only used one other time. And why is uh, this significant? Well, look at the other time it's used. In Luke 18, 1 to 5, we see a very interesting story. Then he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray 
and not lose heart, saying, There was a certain city, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because. Dia gay. This widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. What do we see? With a capital P, persistence. The beauty of God's Word. Like a good teacher, what does Jesus do? He repeats himself. In a different story, seven chapters later in Luke's Gospel, he repeats himself. He uses the same, the same a, a similar story to communicate the same truth of persistence. Persistence, persistence. Okay. What do we make of all this? What's the point? What do we do when we walk out this, this door? We, we've talked a lot of technical stuff, and that, that boggles us down and gets us grumpy. And we'd walk out of here grumpy if I left, if, if I stopped right now. And we'd say, what, well, what did I learn? What's going on in this parable? You know, Warren Wiersbe has a very concise quote that I wanted to let you, you all see. Look what he's saying about this parable, and by implication, the parable thereafter that we're not going to see. He says this, In this parable... Jesus did not say that God is like this grouchy neighbor. In fact, he said just the opposite. If a tired and selfish neighbor finally meets the needs of a bothersome friend, how much more will a loving Heavenly Father meet the needs of His own dear children? He is arguing from the lesser to the greater. Friends, I can't put it any better than that. This is a story of contrasts. Jesus is saying, imagine this selfish man, this self-indulgent man who won't even help his friend. Yet as selfish as he is, and as conceited as he is, and as as self-indulgent as he is, even he a bad friend, will get up at persistence, at the persistent knocking and pleading of the one outside, and relieve himself of his duty to help his neighbor. Even he, the worst friend you could imagine, would do such a thing. By contrast, how much more so? How much more so will Jesus... Rather, our Heavenly Father attend to our needs when we ask of Him. He is not grouchy. He is not conceited. He is not sleeping in bed like this grumpy old man. Rather, our Heavenly Father is waiting and attentive and ready to give us good things when we ask Him for it. God the Father is not like this neighbor. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't get impatient or irritable. He is always, always generous and delights in meeting the needs of His children. The friend at the door had to keep on knocking in order to get what he needed. But God is quick, quick rather, 
to respond to his children's cries. And you know what, friends? He knows what we need. Our Father knows what we need. In Matthew 6, he says it twice. He says, uh, he says in 6.8, he says, The Father knows what you need. And again, Jesus says in 6.32, he says, Your Heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows what you need. He knows what you need. Ask Him for it. Friends, it should come as no surprise that the next verse, the next two verses, which are really the summations of what we've all been saying, it should come as no surprise what we see in the next two verses. And this is what we're going to finish up with, verses 9 and 10. He says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If we are reading verses 9 and 10 in context, it should come as no surprise that Jesus is not making this statement as an invitation to salvation, which sometimes we think about in a very cursory reading of the verse. This is not an invitation to salvation, friends. This is an invitation to prayer. This is an invitation to beseeching God for what you and I need. This is an invitation that says, hey, God is so much better than that sleeper Why don't you ask Him for what you need? Why don't you be persistent in that respect with the Lord? You won't even need to be persistent, but rather be persistent and faithful simply to come to Him every time you have a need. You won't need to ask Him again and again and again and again and again because He knows what you need. What do we have need of? You know, if you look back at the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, we don't have time to look back now, but... There are three things that Jesus says we, we need according to the Lord's Prayer. We need our daily bread, which is physical sustenance. We need to, forgiveness of debts, which is reconciliation. And you and I need... Um, boy, now my mind went blank here. And we need uh, not to be led into temptation, but rather to be upheld in the time of trial. Those are basic needs. Those are core needs. And there are others in the Scriptures. And you can see physical and spiritual needs that you and I say, of course we need those things. Do we need a brand new house? No. Do we need you know, something wonderful as, as this job that gets us a 6K figure? No. Jesus is saying, look, the Father knows what you really need. Ask Him for what you really need. Things like physical sustenance, reconciliation between your brothers and sisters, up to be upheld in the time of trial. And He says, ask, seek, and knock. These are imperatives or commands. They are an invitation, friends, to pray. Repeated three times for emphasis using different words. This is all the same idea. It reminds us to pray without ceasing, as Paul says. In conclusion, let me say this. In this life, in this life, sometimes even our friends and family will fail us. That's just the truth. Sometimes they will fail us. Sometimes we will find ourselves even having to persistently bother a good friend just to get what we need. And while our mothers remind us not to bother Dad, Dad is busy, Dad is working, Dad doesn't have time right now. We've heard that many times. And we know that to be true. But when a child needs attention, love, and care or help from his father, you better believe that child is going to pester and bother his father or her father to get what they need. When it comes to the basic needs of life, 
We will do what it takes to get it. But such is life with family and friends on earth. But it's so much different in our relationship with the Father. Our Heavenly Father is radically unique and set apart from this kind of life practice. Unlike our earthly friends or fathers, our Heavenly Father is never busy. He never needs His undivided attention because He is able and powerful to attend to all those who approach Him in need. Friends, He always, always has time for us. We won't need to ask Him again and again. He knows what we need. All we need to do is be faithful in coming to Him for it. And what an amazing relationship that is. We should marvel that God our Father always has time for you and I. And He's asking you and beseeching you to come to Him. In the last three Sundays, including this one, we've come full circle. Two Sundays ago, rather, we looked at the disciples. They couldn't heal. Remember that? They couldn't heal the demon-possessed boy. Why? They were not reliant on Christ. That was the message. Last week, we looked at the parable of two prayers, a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee's prayer was one of pride, of self-centeredness. But the tax collector's prayer was one of humility, of utterly relying on Christ. Reliance. Reliance. Now we come full circle. What does reliance mean? Reliance on Christ means that you and I will go to Him and ask Him for what we need. If we are to say way back that, yes, we need You, Lord, and if we are to say, yes, we're going to humble ourselves, Lord, then you and I right now need to say, we're going to ask You, Lord. We're going to ask You because we know that we need You. We're going to ask You for the good things. We're not going to be slack in our prayers. But we're going to realize, and here's, here's my main point here, we're going to realize this, that God desires for His children to make requests of Him. He desires it so that He can give us the things we have need of. What a beautiful truth. Ask Him. I, I exhort us. Ask Him for what you need. Do you need physical sustenance? Do you need reconciliation or strength in trials as the Lord's Prayer suggests or maybe some other things? As a church, boy, now is the time to ask God for what we need. We need unity. We need love for each other. I see that occurring in this church and I just pray that it will continue and flourish. This is a united body and I know the love between these saints. And I just pray that we can continue this for the future. And also that we would ask Him for wisdom for the future. We're, it goes without saying that we're in a time of transition right now as a church and we need wisdom. But more so than that, we just need to come to grips with the fact that we need to ask God, ask God, and ask God. If we are going to say that we're reliant on Him, then you and I need to ask Him for good things. Ask Him for blessing. Ask Him for the things that we need. Let's ask Him right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we, we do recognize our reliance on You. We recognize that we are powerless without Your Spirit within us. Father, we thank You for the beauty of our salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. What a great and glorious 
eternity we have now that we have an opportunity through faith in Jesus to be your sons and daughters forever. Lord, that humbles us. When we consider that, that that helps us to depend and to rely on you for what we need. And now, Lord, we see the, the culmination of what it means to rely on you. You want us to ask you. You want us to ask you. Sometimes we persist with friends and they eventually give in, give us what we need. But Lord, you are so radically different than that. You will answer us. You are ready and willing to answer us when we ask you for good things, for the things that we truly have need of. Help us, Lord, today to identify what those things are. Everyone in this room is lacking in some way, shape, or form in their spiritual or physical life. This church is lacking in some manner, spiritually and physically. Father, we are bold right now. And we are bold to pray to you and to ask you for good things, that you would bless us, that you would shine your face upon us, Father, that this church would be a mighty, mighty representation of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is its head. In his name we pray these things. Amen.